This is KUAF 91.3 FM in Fayetteville, your public radio station for more than 37 years. And this is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Timothy Dennis. Ahead on today's show, we hear about partisan politics and hostility. It's part of the latest edition of Natural Election, a new podcast from Ozarks at Large and KUAF. That's coming up in about six and a half minutes. And later on today's show, our militant grammarian gives us a lesson on ellipses and more. First, a federal lawsuit filed by the American Civil Liberties Union of Arkansas on behalf of four Washington County Jail detainees who claimed they were unwittingly administered ivermectin, a controversial COVID-19 treatment, is progressing slowly. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich provides an update. ACLU Arkansas filed suit in mid-January in U.S. District Court in the Western District of Arkansas on behalf of four plaintiffs, They claim the Washington County Detention Center, County Sheriff Tim Helder, and jail contract physician Dr. Robert Karras administered ivermectin to treat and prevent COVID-19 without their knowledge or consent. The case made national news because ivermectin is most commonly used to treat parasites in dogs and cats, including heartworm. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has not approved ivermectin for use in treating or preventing COVID-19 in humans or animals, but consuming ivermectin paste purchased over-the-counter at veterinarian supply stores has become a popular alternative among anti-vaxxers. ACLU Arkansas legal director and licensed attorney Gary Sullivan says the plaintiffs in their case claim Ivermectin made them sick. Yes, the the plaintiffs contend that they were uh, given ivermectin as part of a cocktail of um, drugs that they were not informed about and that they had uh, physical consequences after that. Most of them had gastrointestinal issues. While proponents swear by its efficacy, FDA says use of ivermectin to treat or prevent COVID-19 may cause serious harm, including seizures, comas, even death. According to the ACLU lawsuit, Washington County detainees were dosed with ivermectin without their knowledge starting back in late 2020. The jailhouse treatment, however, wasn't made public until nine months later, when Sheriff Helder questioned at a county quorum court meeting about rumored use of ivermectin at the jail, acknowledged it to be fact. He supports its use. According to public statements made by Kiris, as many as 250 detainees have been treated with ivermectin at the jail, data which Sullivan's attempting to confirm. Sullivan believes Kiris, in an effort to clinically prove efficacy of ivermectin, he also prescribes it at his clinic, Karis Healthcare paid to supply the jail with the drug. It appears that he did from the information we got from a Freedom of Information Act request. Um, since we're not far into discovery right now, we do not know exactly who paid for it, but there were no invoices produced to show that the county had paid for it. Does he continue to administer the drug to detainees at the Washington County Detention Center? Yes, he does, and he states that he's proud of that. ACLU Arkansas is arguing that no one, including incarcerated individuals, should ever be subjected to medical experimentation, which Sullivan hopes to prove through discovery. Dr. Karras claims that no inmates were forced to take ivermectin, however. 
The lawsuit claims the Washington County Detention Center failed to use safe and appropriate treatments for COVID-19, even in the midst of the pandemic. So authorities and physicians must be held accountable. I will add that there is a positive aspect uh, so far of our filing this lawsuit. Um, the detainees are now given some basic information about the drugs that um, are being offered, and they're given the chance to either take them or refuse them. Uh, currently, it is our position that that uh, information they're being, gi being given is not adequate. Last month, the defendants, again, the county sheriff, detention center, and Dr. Karras filed a new motion in the case, claiming it's moot because the plaintiffs, the county detainees, are no longer in the jail. Court records show they've been convicted and transferred to a state correctional facility to serve time in prison for various offenses. But Sullivan plans to maintain pursuit. Yes, in our original complaint, uh, we were asking for an injunction, uh, which is um, equitable relief, which would order the county and the doctor to stop administering ivermectin without informed consent. Under federal law, if a detainee is no longer in jail, they're not entitled to that equitable relief. And when that motion was filed by the defendants, all four of our original plaintiffs had, were, were, had been released from jail. Therefore, they could not seek equitable relief. Since that time, we've had a, a, a fifth plaintiff join the case who is detained at the jail. And we're going to, we are attempting to amend our complaint to ask for money damages for all five plaintiffs. And that relief is not mooted out just because someone's released from jail. Sullivan says this is the only case like it being litigated in the U.S. Although half of all U.S. states have now proposed or passed legislation to support access to off-label use of ivermectin, according to the Federation of State Medical Boards, and restrict disciplinary actions against any physician who prescribes it. Sullivan says Arkansas ACLU is not deterred in their attempt to protect the human rights of those who are incarcerated. Since we are amending to seek monetary damages for the physical distress caused to uh, the detainees, as well as their emotional distress, they will be entitled, the defendants will be entitled to a jury trial. Sullivan expects the trial to be scheduled by early 2023. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Today, a new episode of Natural Election drops, and throughout the podcast, we've done a lot of explaining on how to register to vote, what your rights are as a voter, and how primaries work. Now we're going to get a little more esoteric. Matthew Moore, why should we vote? The short answer is there's a lot of reasons why we vote. And for Patrick Miller, he researches and writes about it for a living. Generally, I focus on American political behavior. My research has been about identities in politics, of which partisanship is part of that, emotion in politics as well. Miller and his co-author Pam Conover wrote a peer-reviewed article in 2015 about the topic of partisan hostility and voting behaviors. If you put our research in the context of other research on this topic, I think that something that we're seeing in American democracy that is alarming in some ways is that partisanship is really becoming a very negative motivator in the sense that uh, your people who are your strongest partisans in America, your strongest Democrats, your strongest Republicans, 
They seem to be motivated more in politics oftentimes, as far as the data go, motivated more by contempt or hatred or dislike of the other side and an interest in simply stopping that side and winning you know, that symbolic victory over the other side and valuing those things more than positivity about their side, any, anything that their side is advancing. So I think, you know, putting all that research in mind and others in context, it, it is a bit of a troubling thing that in a modern American democracy, it is really negativity and contempt and, and stopping the other side that is often what's motivating us to vote, motivating us to pay attention to politics, to donate to campaigns and do a variety of other political activities, you know, far more than anything positive. Is there any sort of line in the sand where political scientists and historians can say, okay, it was this election where we began to saw this sort of, as you put it, effective polarization that started? Not necessarily. Um, and and one, one caveat to all of this is that we can only talk about this for as far back as the data go. We can't say what American public opinion was like in the 1800s, for example, when <laughs> Politics actually led to us having a civil war. Right. <laughs> um, we could be as hateful today as we were 150 plus years ago. I mean, one of the major plot points of the musical Hamilton and real life Alexander Hamilton is that his political rival hated him so much that he literally shot and killed him. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So, yeah. Miller points out that sometimes we look at the time period right after World War II and see the relative moderation between Republicans and Democrats. But maybe what we see in American politics today is more the norm historically, and that post-World War II period is the exception. But I think really from the 1960s onward is when we start to see that, you know, in, in, in almost any way that you measure it, that decline in positivity towards politics and more of a hatred of the other party growing. You know, Americans will always tell you they don't like negative campaigns. They don't like vitriolic campaigns, but they also respond really well to them in the sense that they seem to motivate us to vote. They seem to get us to change our votes sometimes. When we swing as voters between parties, we're often swinging based on negativity, not positivity. That kind of negativity gets us to open our pocketbooks and volunteer on campaigns. Miller points to a moment in the 2008 presidential campaign. Republican nominee Senator John McCain was on the campaign trail hearing from audience members about his opponent, Barack Obama. I got to ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I, I have read about him and he's not, he's not, he's a... Um, he's an Arab. He is not. No, ma'am. No, 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 ma'am. No, ma'am. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Thank you. That cost him politically, with a lot of core Republicans, and you can find the same thing on the Democratic side as well, where. There's this reluctance, and we see it in surveys all the time of both parties, a reluctance to say that the other side are you know, decent people who just have different ideas. There is widespread endorsement in both parties 
of everything negative about the other side. So I think the more common sentiment you see today in American politics is the other side is evil, awful, immoral, nasty, awful people, and we have to hate them. And nothing they say is honest. We can't trust them. They can't be bargained with in good faith. We have to fight them. Miller and his co-author Conover surveyed voters in 2010. And the data is pretty consequential. The data shows that three out of four people who were surveyed agreed with the sentiment that they were angry that the opposing party was, quote, destroying American democracy. Why should people go vote? Is there, you know, when they when they look at the field and they look at the campaigns and they look at the policies that politicians are, you know, putting out for people to see, we're seeing a lot of the I'm a good guy and they're a bad guy and you should vote for me, the good guy. And that may alienate a lot of people from voting. What what would you say to people who are on the fence about voting to begin with? Why should they vote? Well, I think those those messages also motivate a lot of people. And I think that what could possibly be troubling is that the motivation is bigger than the turnoff for many Americans. I mean, I think that's a calculus that politicians make that, again, just reflects people and what we're looking for in our preferences. You know, as a political scientist, I would love it if people just thought that, well, we should vote because it's an obligation of citizenship. And then if you take that a step further, you know, I think there are so many people who are alienated from politics and they're frustrated that politics doesn't do certain things. But yet, if you're not voting and you're not communicating what you want to politicians, then you're missing out on ability on an ability to hold them accountable. So in that sense, for people who are alienated in our society, not participating is self-defeating. And I think that's a very difficult message to give to people who genuinely feel alienated or for whom it is just fashionable to feel alienated because, mm. you know, We don't like politics. I think a lot of times when we think of voting that we think that we have to love the person that we're voting for. Would you advocate for the idea of not necessarily voting for a candidate but voting against a candidate? Yeah, I I, I do notice the same thing, right? I mean there is – and I'm not making a value judgment about it, but there's a lot of – I don't – you know, personality cult can be a strong word. Personality cheerleading – whatever, infatuation with certain politicians, but that's, that's nothing new either. Would I give any legitimacy to being motivated by negativity? I mean, sure. I think reality is that there's always going to be a mixture of pro and con. You know, you're, you're voting because you don't like the other side, but you're also hopefully voting because your side is giving you something that is hopeful or inspiring to you. For State Senator Joyce Elliott, that inspiration came at a young age. I was one of those kids, like a lot of kids, but, you know, growing up in the South and learning all about these documents and whatnot. And I loved just reading stuff. And uh, and our teachers, well, I was going to an all black school then, but our teachers were very adamant about our memorizing things and understanding that even though you may be black and you were at a separate school, you're just as good as everybody else. And here's what you can do. But but I saw the opposite in actions. Uh, but it was, it was when John F. Kennedy was running for office that I saw black people that were near and dear to me, like my family, my church folks and all that. People who I had heard for years whispering about things that I came to learn. It was about politics, but I didn't really know what it was. I didn't even have the word. 
But I heard them talking about poll taxes. And when John F. Kennedy was running for office, the whole notion of their being afraid and their shoulders hunched over, they began to talk out loud and stand up straight and just became, became different people with a kind of hope. And the thing I understood, it had come from this one man, and whether true or not, they thought was going to make them different. He made them feel seen and heard and as, and, as, and as if they were important. I didn't know what it was, but at that time I vowed, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to do this. I want to do what he's doing. Um, I didn't have president in mind, but I just wanted to be able to do something to make sure people that had just been marginalized and left out as a kid, I knew that's what I want to do. I wanted to teach, I wanted to teach school, and I wanted to be in politics. When I think of those two things, and especially the way that you frame that, there's a lot of empowerment that's involved in in that. And I think that's probably what you resonated with. What is it that you found joy in when you used those positions, whether it was as an educator or as a politician, to empower people who you were working alongside? That the power is absolutely the right word because voting is all about power and, and having a, having influence in politics is all about power. And I never felt more empowered than I did in the classroom because my teachers, I before I started going to a, a, an integrated school, our teachers were very tough on us. And when we mastered something, it was like, yes, I finally got through Miss Muldrum's composition. And she said it was good, you know, that kind of thing. But it just made you feel bigger and um, more as if, you know, you were the, not the willow that was bending, but the oak that could stand tall and spread your wings and do things. Uh, and I wanted my students to feel that. And I was teaching at a time when uh, my very first job I was the first black teacher ever at that school in a, in a full-time position. And I knew what it felt like because I'd gone through forced you know, desegregation where I was absolutely not valued and people were doing everything they could for me not to be heard, but I most often was, you know, through pushing for it. And I wanted students to know that there were people like me in power as a teacher who wanted them to feel the same thing. And it was through knowledge and recognition and honoring what they thought and teaching them to honor others and what they thought. But still, you could work together and be even more powerful. As Miss Elliott, she taught high school for decades. She was first elected to office in 2000, where she continued to teach school while simultaneously working in politics and eventually realized doing two all-consuming jobs at once was not fair to everyone involved. So after nearly 30 years in the classroom, she placed her full-time focus on politics. And I thought, well, there are other things that I saw in the classroom that were influenced by the legislature and other things that are influenced by the legislature in my community and in the state in general. So I think this is a good time. I have done my time here. I can have a wider influence in, in helping. In this case, I was thinking a lot about students all over our state because I was frankly not satisfied with the state of our education. I just have always thought we could do so much better. She served as a state representative from 2001 to 2007, where she was then term limited in the House, and was then elected as a state senator from 2009 until 2023, where she has also been term limited. Her next steps in Arkansas politics, a voter engagement and mobilization organization called Get Loud 
Arkansas. I wanted people to uh, be sure they get registered. And a lot of people do that, but that's not enough. And so I want to help people understand why you should actually vote. So there is uh, registration, education, mobilizing them all the way to the polls which means that it is hard work because you, you, you can't just register and walk away. You've got to create a, a relationship with people because people have come from, many people have come from a, le- a legacy thinking it doesn't matter. And that takes time to do is, you know, if I'm going to teach somebody how to write, I can't do it in one day. Go like, here's, here are the elements, so go write. And I want people to understand that every time you step away and not exercise your power, somebody steps into that gap and perhaps makes a decision that you don't want made. But also, too, it matters so much whether or not you vote, because in the last three to four years, we've had some really close elections in the House of Representatives. You know, we we have people who at least one person right now who is literally in the Arkansas legislature in the House because of one single vote. The closest race I could find from the 2020 election was State Representative Carlton Wing for District 38, who won by just 16 votes, which is still an incredibly close race. Elliot says getting folks out to vote isn't about laying on a guilt trip or making them feel bad for not voting in primaries previously. We really need to be careful about not demeaning people because they have not been voting. That doesn't help because if that helped, they would be going because they do get demeaned and talked down too many times. What do you mean you didn't vote? Well, that's all it means. I didn't vote. And I I think it's also important to make sure we go to people, take them where they are, not where we think they ought to be, because obviously they're not where we think they ought to be, but we are not the focus here. The focus are, are, is, the, is on the people that we want to go out and make sure they vote. What word of advice or encouragement do you have to someone who may be going out this May and voting for the first time? Recognize it's, it's, it's like somebody just bought you a brand new muscle car <laughs> and, and, and you didn't even have to pay for it because you don't have an unlike my folks that I talked about who had to actually pay to vote, get a poll tax. Somebody just bought, you just got a brand new muscle car and you're going to go out and exercise your muscle. You might not know everything about that car. You know how to drive. You know how to get it to the place. And Get Loud Arkansas is to help here to help you get prepared for making you making sure you know how all the bells and whistles work. You should get online, look at that ballot, so that if you have questions about it, you can ask them ahead of time. So make a plan, in other words. We'll get more into making a plan in next week's episode, but I wanted to wrap up with this sage wisdom from Senator Elliott when it comes to thinking about why you vote for which candidate. I remind people that, well, if you were running, would you be the perfect candidate? No way. You're going to be because you are human. But remember, this exercise is not about marriage. You're not looking to fall in love with anybody. If you can get with the person at least 80% of the time, that's a winner for you. Because <laughs> because there's going to be something we're not going to agree on. That's human, because that means that you're thinking. <laughs> that's all. 
That was Joyce Elliott, Arkansas State Senator and Executive Director of Get Loud Arkansas. You also heard from Patrick Miller, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Kansas. You can hear the rest of this episode in all the usual spots where you hear podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. The Artisphere Festival Orchestra returns to Walton Arts Center with two main stage concerts under the baton of maestro Corrado Rivera's, featuring more than 90 premier musicians from around the world. Presenting works by Piazzolla, Martucci, and Mendelssohn on May 23rd, and an evening of Strauss and Stravinsky, May 27th. Tickets and more at artisphereFestival.org. This past Sunday, columnist John Brummett resurrected his Arrows of Conventional Wisdom for his weekly column. This week, it was in order to create a panoramic snapshot of political standings. And also this week, he discussed those arrows of conventional wisdom with Roby Brock from our partner Talk Business and Politics. Their discussion was framed in relation to recent polling from Talk Business and Hendricks College. You've got an arrow down for U.S. Senator John Bozeman. You have an arrow up for Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Explain why. Well, he... uh... He isn't, John Bozeman remains sort of the man in Arkansas politics who wasn't there. He continues to, uh, he's held office uh, for decades now. He's going for his third term in the U.S. Senate. And yet his general name identification entering this race remained low. And he's against, and he is paired against two, I would say, extreme right, uh, uh, I consider sort of mildly non-serious or non-serious candidates, which is, not to say Republicans do, and he can't put them away. And uh, uh, so what he's at, he's at 45, and they're at uh, Beckett. Jake Beckett is at 19, and the gun goddess, Jan Morgan, who hasn't done much advertising that I've seen, but she's known from running before, she's at, what, 16.5? So it's possible. It's possible. I, I forget the undecided there. What is it, about 20%, 15%? Somewhere in that range. I mean... Probably he'll get enough of the undecided and he'll spend a lot of money here at the end. And I think Sarah Sanders ought to do it. She's an old campaign manager and good friend. She could do a campaign spot for him or speak at a rally for him. You think he'll come through, but he, but, but on his own, he has not been able to, to put these two characters away. Uh, and he's relied uh, less on himself uh, He's he's long been a Mitch McConnell uh, conventional Republican vote in the Senate. He's now running as uh, essentially on the thing that I'm as extreme as those two are. And Donald Trump is for me. If he didn't have that Donald Trump endorsement, I, I wonder where he would be. So, I, you know, he's just he's not carrying himself. He's relying on others. And he and, and he is still in some level of uh, trouble. Some probably be all right. But uh Certainly not deserving of an arrow up, in my view. All right. Uh, You've got uh, Governor Asa Hutchinson with an arrow down, maybe more on his national politics and political future. Yeah, I I mean, you know, I've become almost a a fan of his pragmatic conservatism. And I admire what he's trying to do in the Republican, uh, national Republican conversation which is saying, let's get back to pragmatic problem solving uh, conservatism. Uh, and, and all that's good. But in the, as I look at the current Republican climate nationally and in Arkansas, I'm not sure there's a place for that. And I'm and nationally, but I welcome his effort to see if there is. What I am sure of is there's not much place for that in Arkansas. 
you look at uh, if if you look at, at the devotion to Trump uh, and and Trumpists in, in Arkansas, uh, I, I, what I said was if if it's if it's uh, Asa will have to fortify himself if he runs for president, uh, uh, fortify himself against the seeming certainty that he would get beat in the Arkansas primary. Uh, you know, it's just uh, I think he would be uh, against Trump. Against Tom Cotton, I think Tom Cotton's brand of conservatism is bigger in the Republican base than certainly Ace's pragmatic centrism, which appeals to a center a center left newspaper columnist in Little Rock. So that's that's I mean that gets you an air down uh, as far as I'm concerned. One last polling question here for you, Lieutenant Governor's race. We show uh, Leslie Rutledge, the Attorney General, with a lead among her rivals, uh, second place, State Senator Jason Rapert. Let's just assume that race goes to a runoff, which is a potential scenario. Size up a Leslie Rutledge, Jason Rapert runoff race for <laughs> Lieutenant Governor. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. First, let me say, of all your findings, that's the one that surprises me. I mean, she's got the name identification that she used all of our public money in the Attorney General's office to build by sponsoring the local news for months. Uh, she's 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 got the, she, she's she's dipping down to this office to just sort of take it, even though she had disdain, disparaged it before because she couldn't compete with Sanders as the leading Trumper for governor in uh, in Arkansas. And I would have expected, I kind of had an idea she would be at or above fifty in what I consider a sort of a checkered field, but she's at forty. Now there are 25% or more still undecided, and you know she has a chance to get there without a runoff. But Jason Rapert, the evangelical, the extremist evangelicals, extremist evangelical, uh, a preacher with an ability to communicate, uh, is at 11, and then what? And he's taking maybe some of the extreme evangelical base, and then. Bledsoe, the uh, Surgeon General, is from a prominent Benton County Republican family. Uh, the, the Republican County Judge of Washington County is in the race, and they're getting like seven or nine or seven or six or something like that, which suggests she's losing some of that hotbed, uh, that concentration of Republican voters to these local people. I wonder if she doesn't get in runoff. And if it's Jason, well... I mean, I don't know how much money he'll get get to be on television, and she she might be able to come up with some, but but uh, Jason Rapert could cause her some trouble in a runoff, and he's uh, he could get more attention for for some of the things that he's saying. Uh, primarily, do you want to give give this job, which is a nothing job, we shouldn't even have it. You want to give this job to a woman who said when she was running for governor, I'm not afraid of Sarah Sanders, which she was, and I wouldn't ever run for lieutenant governor because after having a real job as attorney general, why would I want that job? That That's the kind of thing in a runoff. Oh, well, it's just, and, and I almost root for Jason because uh, with with uh, almost, almost is a key word there, uh, because uh, with Asa Hutchinson leaving to run for president pretty soon, uh, that would leave Jason as the only Republican in Arkansas who returns my calls. So, uh, you know, uh, there's got to look on. You got to look on the bright side. I tell you uh, he thinks with, he thinks if one more phone call, he's very he's in, he's he's a minister. Uh, he thinks with one more phone call, he can turn me around. Probably not going to happen, but he thinks so. So I fascinating. 
That was John Brummett, a columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, speaking with Roby Brock from our content partner, Talk Business and Politics. You can find more political and business news from around the state at talkbusiness.net. And you can read John's columns at arkansasonline.com. Some new laws related to voting in Arkansas has the American Association of Retired Persons, or AARP, working to ensure voters in the state are aware of potential changes before they head to the polls this month. Victoria Brown, Associate Director of Communications for AARP Arkansas, says voters age 50 and older will be crucial deciders in the upcoming election and need to know how new laws could impact them. Um, And more changes could be coming as a new absentee ballot deadline law faces legal challenges. A redistricting plan may also affect which candidates run in your district. So there have been several changes to the voting process that individuals 50 plus should be aware of before they cast their ballot um, in the primary or general election. Voter identification requirements are stricter for both in-person and absentee ballots this year. And absentee ballots must be turned in the Friday before Election Day. The previous deadline was the Monday before. Brown says older voters are more likely to qualify for an absentee ballot. Um, Absentee ballots are only available to voters who can't get to a polling station, um, polling site on Election Day. This includes people with an illness or physical disability, military members and others who are temporarily living outside of the country, and those who will be unavoidably absent from the polls on Election Day. This is very important if you plan to cast an absentee vote. You want to know, be sure that you qualify to cast that ballot. Early in-person voting, this option is available to all registered voters in the 15 days before Election Day. She also says some voters may be unaware of changes to their ballots since the state redrew its district map after the 2020 census with new boundaries for local, state, and federal districts and voting precincts. If you're unsure of where you're voting um, and things that have changed in your district, you can visit your um, county clerk's office. You can call them. um, Or you can also visit the Secretary of State office, which has a lot of information. Their website is SOS arkansasgovernor slash elections slash four dash voters. So there um, are plenty of resources, whether your county clerk's office or the secretary of state's office, where you can kind of figure out um, what district or who you'll be voting for. So you'll have that information before it's time for you to cast your ballot. Early voting is now open in Arkansas through May 23rd. Election day is Tuesday, May 24th. And for information, you can visit KUAF.com vote. The KUAF Lunch Hour April performance by Old Man Saxon is now available on the KUAF YouTube page. If you didn't get a chance to witness this inspiring show in person, this is the next best thing. Old Man Saxon is a Colorado-born rapper who moved to Los Angeles to pursue becoming the greatest entertainer ever, and he spent a little time in the KUAF lobby to prove it. The Old Man Saxon KUAF Lunch Hour Performance, available now on KUAF's YouTube page. Let's dance! This is Ozarks at Large. Our militant grammarian often considers punctuation. This week, she sits down with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums to discuss the few times three dots can be correctly used in a sentence. If I were to write this, let's say in a review of the classic film Casablanca, tell me what's missing. Of all the gin joints, she walks into mine. 
of all the gin joints, and I never get this one hundred percent right. Of all the gin joints in all of the world, she has to walk yeah, in them. Yeah, and they actually two phrases: in all the towns, in all it, the yes. world. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the actual thing is, of all the gin joints in all the towns and all the world, she walks into mine. You played it for her, Sam. You can play it for me. But anyway, I can keep going. <laughs> Pretty important omission, but let's say I wanted to stick with my decision. Because so many people know the whole quote, Mm -hmm. what marks of punctuation should I have put inside the sentence? The very best piece of punctuation, in my opinion. (laughs) Oh, no. The ellipse. Are you an ellipse junkie? (laughs) I am beyond ellipse junkie. You ask my coworkers, I think the ellipse... And I, God, are we going to be talking about yeah, how to correctly are. use it? We're going to be talking about it. Here's, I'm just going to make this the shortest militant grammarian ever. The correct use of the ellipse is however the heck you want to use it. But, okay, I love the ellipse. All right. There is, in, Which our, is dot, dot, dot. in, yes. in our line of work, there is mm-hmm. one correct use of an ellipse. Yeah, it's everything, but go ahead. Okay. What is it? All right. Oh, 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 it, it, it's what you just did. Huh? It's how you just yeah. use it, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, there are actually two acceptable uses, and one I, I'm probably going to give you a buy on for for the second mm-hmm. time. We'll get to that. An ellipse is also known as a suspension point or even just dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Do you use more dots than three? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, no. good. I, I'm, I, I'm an ellipse purist <laughs> okay. when it comes to you, how you, what it looks like. Okay. What role did the ellipsis play in my movie quote above? Uh, it stands in for more things. Om- omission of words. Right. right. And that is the first proper use of an ellipsis yes. to point out an o- omission. In fact, the word ellipsis comes from the ancient Greek term that translates to omission. Okay. Why would a writer want to leave out words from a quote? Well, brevity, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you don't want to use all that page space or mm-hmm. ink. Mm-hmm. Um, it may have a profanity. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it may be eliminating redundancy. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else? Yeah, there, there are four identified, but you hit, I think, on just about all. all. Right. To emphasize, oh, well, not this one, to emphasize a specific section of the passage. So you don't want those other words in there distracting oh, from sure, why you sure, want to Oh, sure, 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 right. Um, or the omitted words would make the selection harder to read or understand. Or they're irrelevant to what's being discussed, Mm -hmm. or the writer has a strict word limit to follow. Right. Mm -hmm. My good friend Professor Gerald Jordan and I differ in our feelings about journalists using ellipses. We agree that if one must quote a written document and want to leave out portions for one of the reasons we discussed above, ellipses are necessary. Do you know why that is? Tell me. Why, Why... we should use ellipses when we're quoting a written document? Well, to show that, wait, there's something we're not including. Right. So if we've got a line of the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, hey, we're not telling you everything that's in there. And you might know that it's there. Right. Or at the very least, and you can know go you look know. it up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. So we want to say, we're yeah, not we trying, know. We're right. not trying to alter the meaning or. Exactly. Right. But young writers tend to want to use ellipses when they are quoting sources with whom they have met face-to-face and taken down notes during their conversation. My belief is that reporters should not be expected to be stenographers. Right. 
As long as the reporter paraphrases fairly and accurately, I see no need to use ellipses even in a direct quote. Mm. In fact, I think it creates doubt in yeah. the readers, in the writer's expertise. No, I get that. I get that. Okay. So um, the second and last proper use of an ellipsis mm-hmm. is restricted to more casual writing or character dialogue. Now, when you say you use them all the time, are these in memos and emails and stuff I, like oh, that? Oh, my God, I use them in emails <laughs> all the time. Now, I know you've said that there are only two other uses. I will say. No, that's it. No, wait, 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 wait. Uh, All right. All right. No, okay. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> also. If you've never become comfortable with a semicolon, (laughs) you use them. And I don't know. I use them for my own scripts and in my emails if I'm listing things instead of a comma for some time. Uh, Yeah, yeah. uh, You're mentioning the other forms of punctuation that should be used (laughs) instead of overusing ellipses. Okay. All right. So if you read a book with a following passage, what would you think the ellipsis meant? What, why do you think it was used? Okay. The snake is in my desk drawer, well, she you, gasped. Yeah, you're showing that there was a pause in the character's speech. Why? Why would... Why Out would, of breath or, or... I mean, how else would you do that on the written page? It builds drama. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. The fictional creative uses of ellipses include indication of an incomplete thought, Mm -hmm. showing the character's mood, such as hesitation or confusion, and to create suspense or drama. Mm. So those are legit in in creative writing. Sure. Kyle, what do you think the style book says about how to space the dots? Wow, I didn't realize that there could be debate about this. I would go dot, dot, dot. No spacing in it. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And that's the AP way. Okay. Uh, Which makes sense because the AP is all about not wasting space. Right. But it depends on which style book. Um, AP style book, uh, which for all my professional life was my style Bible, says space before. So letter, space, Mm -hmm. ellipsis. Mm -hmm. And then space after. Okay. Uh, but some style guides say it's fine to put a space between every dot in the ellipsis. Yeah, boy, I don't think of, I don't think of spaces anywhere. I just think letter, ellipsis, no. next letter. Yeah, no, no you okay. have to have the spaces around. <laughs> An ellipsis is three dots, never two, never more than Agreed. three. Agreed. But there is an instance in which you add another dot to the line. The end of a sentence mm-hmm. when it's a period. Yes. Now. How does that go? Tell me the last word in your sentence, and then you start with the ellipse. You're going to put a space now that I've now told that you Now that we, to. yes, yes. Okay, now do the do it. Then after the ellipsis is done, you would have a space and a period. Good, you have yes. to have a space. Now that I, Some people put four dots together, and that's not right. No, 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 right. because then it's not an ellipsis anymore. Right. <laughs> then it's, I don't know what it is. <laughs> a grand pause. Word uh, WordGenius.com says any style is acceptable, but it's more important to be consistent. So don't switch between spaces and no spaces in the same document. And don't use them so much. <laughs> Learn <laughs> something about semicolons. Semicolons are beautiful. I'm sure we're going to talk about semicolons someday in the future. Uh, our militant grammarian is... Catherine Scholz. <laughs> <laughs> dot dot dot. Catherine Scholz is our militant grammarian. She talked with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellams. 
The Juke Joint Project from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History and the Music Education Initiative opened Friday in the center's lobby off of the Fayetteville Square. Orson Weems, director of the Music Education Initiative, says the project will help to amplify the voices of African-American musicians and tell the story of the blues in Arkansas and the Mississippi Delta. This music was born and, and created from America. And it inspired so many different and created so many different other sectors of the music industry. But it's important for us to do that because stories have to be told. This is some historic uh, music. It's incredible in the relationships that it created. And the torch has been lit for me to carry this on and, and to bring it to the community the best that I can and to help, and and hopefully we can get support to see the kind of things that we want to do and work with others to bring it in and it's do things for the people. The exhibit includes a replica juke shack, typical of where many blues musicians would have played throughout the South in the early 20th century. The display, built with period-aged cypress wood and tin, was developed by designer Khaki Hawkersmith and initially presented in 2020 at the Clinton Presidential Center in Little Rock, but was canceled because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's prior center director Bill Schwab. So they disassembled it and he got access to it, but he didn't have a venue. And guess what? We got the atrium. So I, I looked at the, uh, the photos, I looked at his goals for the project, and I said something like, We need to be part of this. He says the walkthrough exhibit will host several public programs, including speakers, lectures, films, and live music. And Weems says the ultimate goal is to give people in northwest Arkansas a true blues experience. Folks here in northwest Arkansas, a lot of them, haven't been down to what they would consider the blues. They know a different type of a blues, but they wouldn't know what a, a, a juke joint blues would be. But what we're ultimately doing is opening up for the community, for folks like you all. The exhibit is open to the public through June 30th at the Pryor Center, which is located at 1 East Center Street on the Fayetteville Square. The Fort Smith Museum of History, the Fort Smith Historical Society, and the Fort Smith National Historic Site are hosting a commemorative celebration of the historic Garrison Avenue Bridge from 1.30 to 4 p.m. this Saturday, May 14th, at the Frisco Station Building on the National Historic Site Grounds. Referred to as the Million Dollar Free Bridge, it was constructed in 1922 over the Arkansas River between Garrison Avenue in Fort Smith and Oklahoma. Governors from both states were present for the christening and dedication, which featured a flight of eight Army biplanes that performed maneuvers overhead. More than 20,000 citizens turned out, says Chuck Gerard, board member of the Fort Smith Museum of History. Prior to 1922, when the bridge was completed, the only way to get across over into the uh, Oklahoma was on the old Missouri Pacific Railroad Bridge, which not only operated as a railroad bridge, but it was planked, and it was a toll bridge for pedestrian and cars and wagons. And so you had to pay to get across the bridge. The 40-foot-wide and 3,100-foot-long steel-reinforced concrete bridge featured arch spans supporting the elevated roadway and wide pedestrian sidewalks. The project took a decade of planning and construction to complete. The 22 bridge, the Million Dollar Bridge, was gorgeous. It it was uh, unlike what you would see today. And everything today is is just bland concrete and steel. It had a beautiful architectural design to it that had these 
ornate lights that went all the way across it. And we actually have on loan the architectural concept drawings of this that we're going to be putting on display. But it was it was a gorgeous architectural masterpiece uh, with all kinds of, uh, uh, of intricate uh, lighting fixtures and and balustrades that went along the, the side of the bridge. The bridge was destroyed in the late 1960s, replaced by an industrial highway bridge to accommodate the new McClellan-Kerr Navigation Channel for river barge access. Caroline Spear, director of the Fort Smith Museum of History, says the commemorative celebration will include speeches, special guests, and an antique car parade traveling from the Oklahoma border across the bridge east into Garrison Avenue. That will be representative. Some of them will be very early. Um, and then some of them will also represent vehicles that you would have, because this bridge was up until the 70s. So other vehicles that you would have seen cross this bridge, and they have some beautiful cars. And they'll actually carry over our um, our current mayor. And then that day in 22, they had the, the mayor then, and there was actually a queen and her court. We have two reenactors that will reenact uh, the queen in the court of the day. So they will come across the bridge with um, the mayor and uh, in the vehicles. And then they will come down into the Frisco Station parking lot. So you'll be able to view those vehicles um, through four o'clock that afternoon. An exhibition and more presentations will be part of Saturday's celebration. The event is free and open to the public. To see a schedule of events, you can visit fortsmithmuseum.org. I think for a long time, we think about cryptocurrency from the like consumer end, but you're talking about it from the like production end. Is it easy for a person to get in on the production side of it? Like say I wanted to become a miner. How easy is that? Blockchain, the future of money, a podcast that explores all things in the realms of cryptocurrency, blockchain, the metaverse, NFTs, and more. With your hosts, Eric Denbor, Jasper Logan, and me, Lee Wood, along with Fayetteville Public Television, is now a video podcast. Check out episodes on the Fayetteville Public Television YouTube channel. And you can always listen to the podcast at KUAF.com. The Fort Smith Public Schools Board of Education has approved a new salary schedule for certified employees that will give teachers on average a nearly 6% pay increase with the 2022-23 contract year, according to our partners at Talk Business and Politics. The new step schedule will raise teacher salaries on average by more than $3,400. School board members have also suggested that some administrative positions could be combined or eliminated. The school district has 25 administrative positions who earn over $100,000 annually and 30 earning more than $90,000 a year, which is more than districts of comparable size. A new art exhibit has been installed at, of all places, Northwest Arkansas National Airport. London-based artist Camille Wallala's Ice and Slice will include everything from service buildings leading up to the airport to the terminal itself. The partnership with Wallala is presented by O's Art NWA and Just Kids. Artwork will be visible to not just patrons inside the airport, but guests flying into XNA will be able to see the artwork from above. The installation begins today, May 10th, and will be revealed in early June. 
Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is 91.3 FM, KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Mount Gaylor. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas, and Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Daniel Carruth, and Kyle Kellums, and our militant grammarian is Catherine Schultz. Our conversations between Roby Brock and columnist John Brummett come to us through our partnership with Talk Business and Politics. You can find more news from around the state at talkbusiness.net. Additional help with producing today's show comes from Rachel Sanchez-Smith, and I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Timothy Dennis. We will end today's show with Old Crow Medicine Show. They'll perform this Thursday at the Momentary in Bentonville. Brittany Spencer is also on the bill, and Smokey in the Mirror will open the show. You can find out more at themomentary.org. Thank you so much for spending part of your Tuesday with us. We'll be back with you tomorrow with a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. Until then, take care of yourself, and we'll talk again soon. But they're busting down the dock James River Blues That train came on through And the work's gotten slow Where's the boat man to go? I think I'll float on down to Richmond town. They don't need us anymore, hauling freight from shore to shore. That big eye.